Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is Whiskey Wednesday, March 3rd, 2021, and you're listening to Episode 36. Today, we speak with Lauren Oliver, Mash House Production Operator at Glengoyne. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. Most people are familiar with the once common expression, a woman's place is in the kitchen. Until the mid-18th century, the distilling of spirits for domestic consumption was largely the responsibility of women. And considering what was historically deemed woman's work, this is no surprise. Essentially, distilling is cooking. One must follow a recipe, ingredients must cook at a certain temperature for a specific duration, and before the Industrial Revolution, most distilling was done at home. Since many of the steps could be monitored in between dealing with children resistant to napping, running to the barn to milk cows, or myriad other household duties, women were often in charge of making spirits. Between 1760 and 1840, however, the perception of handcrafted foods and drinks was transformed by the Industrial Revolution. The distilling of spirits and hand-turning of butter, for example, came to be seen as rural activities to be pursued by country folk and peasants. The more mechanized and thus less labor-intensive it became, the more whipping up whiskey became a man's job. Although today's spirits industry still skews male, women have long made large and lasting contributions to the industry. Mary the Jewess, a.k.a. Mary the Prophetess, or Miriam, has been called the first lady of hooch. Mary lived around the year 200 and is credited with inventing the tribicus, a type of alembic still. A modern copy of her device is used in parts of Europe to make whiskey and brandy to this day. In 1818, Catherine Spears Fry Carpenter made the first sour mash, a fermentation process that involves a quarter of already fermented mash being added to a new mash set for fermentation. To learn more about this process, sign up for our VIP Lounge, where you can learn in-depth about sour mashing in our new series, The Malting Floor. In our exclusive interview with her, Nicole Austin shares the finer points of sour mash. While Prohibition produced many famous male bootleggers, including Al Capone and Bill McCoy, a.k.a. the real McCoy, the era's many female bootleggers remain largely unknown. Why? One reason is that in many states it was illegal for a male police officer to search a woman, and that made it much easier for women to carry booze in their bootlegs. The most famous, or perhaps infamous, of these women was Gertrude, nicknamed Cleo Lithgow. A former stenographer for a British liquor importer, Cleo set up a legal shop in the Bahamas, but ran bootlegged spirits to the United States. Today, there are some amazing ladies getting back to women's whiskey roots, and we've interviewed many of them. Among them are Molly Troop, Master Distiller at Freeland Spirits, Episode 8. Nicole Austin, General Manager and Distiller at Cascade Hollow, Episodes 6 and 32, plus Episode 1 of The Malting Floor. Fawn Weaver, founder of Uncle Nearest, episode 15, and episode 2 of The Malting Floor. Tracy Franklin, the first head distiller apprentice supported by the Nearest and Jack Advancement Initiative, episode 18. And Allison Park, founder of Bren Whiskey, episode 4. 
Up next, we have the pleasure of speaking with Lauren Oliver, who shares with us her journey from studying graphic design to becoming Glengoyne Distillery's first ever mash lass. Stay with us. Hey, do you like whiskey, food, and adventure? I do. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in our World of Wheezy segment host here on the podcast, and Whiskey, a Chef's Journey. That chef. That's right, the project that started this very podcast. The series stars our very own chef, Louise Leonard, winner of Emmy-winning The Taste on ABC. And explores and connects the worlds of whiskey and food, city by city, country by country. Would you like to see this spirited culinary adventure on a TV near you? Well, you can, by helping us finish the pilot episode through our crowdfunding campaign. For more information, including behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and incentives. And to make a pledge, visit our website, whiskeyachefsjourney.com. Or search for our campaign, Whiskey A Chef's Journey, at gofundme.com. That's gofundme.com now. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. Bless. <laughs> cheers. cheers. Today on Spirits of Whiskey, our guest is Lauren Oliver. Lauren is Mash House Production Operator, better known as the Mash Lass, at Glengoyne Distillery in Dumgoyne, Scotland. Welcome, Lauren. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. So you have a fun and interesting whiskey journey, it sounds like. So why don't you tell us, when you were a wee little ass, did you ever imagine yourself being a mash lass? (laughs) (laughs) If you say yes, you have issues. Yeah. Um, It was quite a long journey. I was not a wee lass dreaming of becoming a mash lass. Um, Yeah, so at school, I just had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. As most people would know in school, the teachers don't really tell you that you can make career out of alcohol. Right. It's either doctors or lawyers or nurses or go and do English. They don't tell you about the booze and the fun stuff. (laughs) So I came out of came out of school and I actually studied graphic design at college. Ah. Nice. That's what I qualified in, but I'm just more of a hands-on person and sitting in front of a computer every day. As much as I enjoyed it, it wasn't for me. Uh-huh. So I then went on and did so many other different jobs. I've worked with children. I worked with horses. I actually worked with dairy cows for a while. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I've, I've done them all. Mm-hmm. But you decided the milk wasn't the right liquid for you, huh? No, it wasn't strong enough. <laughs> you weren't bullish on cows, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually started up my own little popcorn business. Oh, wow. And I was working in a jewelry shop, actually teaching people how to make their own jewelry business at the time. I'd started my own company and I kind of needed something that would give me more flexible hours so I could still continue my business, but could still bring some money in to pay the rent. So my sister at the time was a tour guide at Glengoyne Distillery. And she told me that they're a lovely place to work and the hours are really flexible. And I thought, brilliant, that suits me. Was lucky enough to interview and get a job as a tour guide, which is where I started. And so that was actually 2015 I started. 2015 I started as a tour guide and I fell in love with the industry and the place, the whiskey and everything. I just thought, where has this been all my life? 
So <laughs> after about seven months, I actually sold my little company on and I went full time into studying for becoming a production operator in the distillery. I just thought, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is it. <laughs> ah, did you grow up in the Highlands? Just outside Glasgow, actually. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I lived right on the edge. So there's a lovely hill area, which is called the Campsies, which is just outside of Glasgow. So although I was really close to the city, I did grow up in the country. Mm-hmm. So I was always, you know, outside. I had horses growing up. I was a bit of a country bumpkin, if you like. Nice. <laughs> I was never really a city person. I've always liked the peace and quiet and the slow, slower side of life. Well, you couldn't have chosen a more appropriate distillery. No. More fitting fit. Yeah. Yeah. A very slow business. And as um, Gordon had mentioned as well, we are the slowest distilling distillery in Scotland as well. So (laughs) it sits me perfectly. Nice. Okay. Tell us about that. Why are things so slow in Glengoyne? Yeah. So at Glengoyne, it's not about the bottom line at all. It's not about production, production. We need to sell. We need to get stuff out there. It's all about keeping our history alive. So we legally started distilling in 1833. Well, you needed some more in D time. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's when George Connell, the farmer who originally started distillery, that's when he bought the first license for £10, I believe, to make us legal. A fortune and at the time. A fortune at the time. And we have just kept the traditions from then alive. They didn't do it fast back then, and we don't do it fast now. It's just Mm -hmm. all about keeping that tradition alive. Nice. That's it. So what does your sister think about you going from tour guide to the mash lass? And does she still work there? At first, she was a bit like, oh, my goodness, I started here before her, everyone. She's not the superstar. I was here first. (laughs) (laughs) That's not how it works. Yeah. Is she older or younger? She's younger than me. Oh, okay. But she doesn't work there anymore. She's got a fantastic job. She's She's a geologist, actually. So she's off to new adventures as well. And But my mum always laughs because she's got three daughters and all three of us wear steel toe cap boots to work. So she's like, where did I go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Do you have any brothers? No, just three girls. I'm the oldest. Nice. Yeah. So tell us, when you decided that you were going to make this your career, what was your first step into your education? So when I first decided I wanted this to be my life, I did quite a bit of research because I thought I know nothing really about this apart from what I've learned from guiding. And I saw that you could do a course through the Institute of Brewing and Distilling, Mm -hmm. which worked perfect for me because I still needed to work full time to earn money. So I couldn't afford to go back to school. So this was a distance um, online learning that you could do great Mm -hmm. and I thought brilliant so I applied for this course and throughout my year of tour guiding I just studied at home studied in work as well but I shouldn't really say that (laughs) Um, just any chance I got I studied really really hard there's got to be downtime between tours so you know yeah a little bit (laughs) so yes I just studied really hard and Robbie who's our distillery manager he got wind that I was studying and wanting to do this qualification And it just goes to show what a lovely company they are. They actually then paid for me to go and sit this exam so I didn't need to pay for it out of my own pocket. Oh, wow. Which was incredible. They really invested in me. Um, They sent me on this three-day whiskey study trip. But as you can imagine, I'll leave it to yourselves that whiskey students, when we get together in uh, Speyside, there wasn't much studying that went on. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you have to taste and nose and experience all of it. That's all study. 
right? Yes. It is an applied science after all. Yes, that's what we told ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) So after that, it was brilliant. And and meeting other people in the same boat as me and um, from all people came from all over the world for this course as well. I met people that from Australia that were there all learning about the yeast, the culture yeast. That was their job. I met older people who had been in the industry for a few years but wanted to just practice on their studying. So it was a real eye opener into what this industry, what my career was going to look like. It was a fantastic weekend. Let me ask, what was the ratio between men and women? Was there more men or was it about even? A lot more men than women. That's what I figured, yeah. There was actually only two of us that were in looking to go into production. Oh, wow. um, and then there was about three other women who were tour guides at the time, but they were just wanting to learn more information. But only two of us out of the whole class were ladies and going into production. Well, I guess that would be good if you wanted to meet somebody that yeah. weekend. <laughs> yeah. You have a lot more people to choose from. Yeah. And it broke the ice with all the liquor as well. <laughs> right, of course. Nice. Yeah. So did you know there was going to be an opening and you were looking forward to try to stay there or were you just doing the tour guiding and going to do this and wherever you could get a job, you were going to go? There wasn't an opening when I first started studying, but there was quite a few older people <laughs> who, who were working there. So I thought, well, if I study, I love this company, then at least when a job does open up, I've got myself a good chance to step in and hopefully begin my own career. So employees on the brink of superannuation. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is, it was actually a younger guy about my age that left to go and do something else. And now I took his job and I work in between uh, two 70-year-olds. That is what? beautiful. So they're that still there. Yeah, they're still there. Wow. <laughs> Talk about a generational transfer. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So they're fantastic. One of them has been there for 27 years and the other one's been there for 25 years. So I am oh, wow. by far the baby of the group. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I bet they're downloading wisdom and history and know-how to you at a generous rate. Yeah, it's fantastic. I absolutely love working alongside them. As you say, they've got so much knowledge and passion as well. I mean, to still be working all these hours and shifts at that age, you have to be passionate to do it. Otherwise, you just wouldn't manage because it's, it's hard work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the amount of wisdom and passion that they pass on to me and the stories as well of what not to do can also be quite funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, that's yeah. good. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your actual job and what it entails so that the listeners can learn yeah. what a mash last does. So a mash last, primarily the, the mashing side. But do you have that on your business card? Because you should. I would love to have that on my business card if I actually had a business card, but Glenn Goyne's not modern enough. Oh for a business card. (laughs) I think after this podcast, I'll just go make my own business cards up and just start handing them out anyway. (laughs) You should. So the daily duties of a mash lass is obviously mashing is my skill, which is the very, very start of the whiskey production process. So what we do is we take malted barley and we mill it down into a fine grist Quite an interesting fact that I think about Glengoyne is everything there is obviously old and slow and traditional. And the mill that we use to grind down our barley, Mm -hmm. we purchased secondhand in 1912. Oh, wow. And it's still going to this day. It is a fantastic piece of kit. How very Scottish. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So even just to be working around machinery that's that old, it's quite magical. Mm-hmm. How big is that machine? Um, it's just, I'm not very good with um, feet and inches. It's about the height of the standard room. What's that? 
10 feet maybe. Okay. Something like that. It's not very big. It's Standard ceiling height? Is that what you're referencing? Standard ceiling height, yeah. Yeah. In the US, it's 8 to 12 feet. Yeah. I was quite close with 10. That was a good guess. Yeah. <laughs> right in the middle. So it's a traditional bobby mill that we use at Glengoyne. And it grinds down our, our malted barley into this fine powder that we rename as grist. So it's G-R-I-S-T. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's mixed. It's basically all the components of the barley. You've got the outer husks, you've got the flour, and all the sugars are now accessible for me to then mash and get the sugar extraction. That's what my job is. It's sugar extraction. Awesome. Sugar extraction. Yep. So I take this ground down grist. What I do is I bring it along into a massive big container beside my mash tun called a hopper. And sometimes it gets stuck in there. So I have a massive wooden mallet that I just bash this big hopper with, with my hands. And it makes a really loud bang to get the grist moving. into my mash tun. Well, hopefully that can be when you're having a bad day and you just need to let off some steam. It's like, oh, time to go get the... Yeah. <laughs> time to go hit the... <laughs> I think all the men that I work with, if they're if I bash it really hard, they're like, well, stay away from Lauren today. She's in a bad mood. <laughs> <laughs> so what I do is I get this grist moving and I pour it into the mash tun as I mix it with hot water, which is a very specific temperature of 63.5 degrees Celsius. Okay. The reason it has to be so specific is to activate certain enzymes within that ground down barley to activate the sugar extraction. Okay. It's all done by hand. We're not automated on our site. So I have five different valves and I have one little tiny computer screen that has a temperature reading on it from the thermometer inside my mash tun. And it takes me about one hour to get just shy of four tons of this barley into the mash tun with this hot water at that specific temperature. Wow. I then start to drain it away. I hope somebody's helping you put that much barley in there. All by myself. Oh my goodness. Just all all me. So the very first time I did it, that was some pressure. You don't need a gym. No. You don't need a gym membership at all. No, it's, it's actually quite therapeutic the very first time I did it. I was so nervous because it's the start of the process. And if I mess it up, there's no fixing it. Right. The distillation side can only distill what I produce. So there was quite a lot of pressure on my very first one. I remember it well. I was petrified, but it went well, thankfully. (laughs) (laughs) And what year was that that you got to do this one, the first? So I went full time. It's actually just been over three years. It was the start of February 2018. I became a full-time production member. Okay. So I drain off this sugar water and it's now called wort, W-O-R-T. And I cool it down to a temperature of 18 degrees Celsius. And the water I use to cool it down just comes from our local reservoir about five miles down the road from the distillery called Karen Valley. Mm-hmm. Okay. I cool this wort down and then I pour it into a washback, which looks like a massive barrel if nobody's seen one ginormous and I pour 19,000 litres of this wort into this wash back and then I set it with yeast to then start the fermentation process. Okay. So that's sort of in a nutshell what I do. There's a few different levels of mashing so that was the first level at 63 and a half degrees and then to the same barley I then add a hotter water at 78 degrees celsius I'm sorry, I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit. That's okay. Don't worry about it. We know it's hot. Yeah. I mean, we're the only stupid people still using Fahrenheit. (laughs) I don't understand. And this second water just gives that, basically, it's just 
attacks and starts to encourage some of the tougher enzymes to break down and release even more sugar so I can get every single ounce of sugar of that barley mm-hmm. to put into my fermentation in the washback. It's 172.4 degrees Fahrenheit. There we go. I've learned that today. Wow, that's hot. Yeah, so that's me now got all my wort out of the barley. But because we're Scottish, we don't like to waste anything here. We're quite stingy when it comes to things. We want to get every last drop of everything. Yep. So what I do next with the same barley in the mash tun is I add a third lot of water, even hotter again at 90 degrees Celsius. Wow. So almost boiling. I must admit, it's a great place to work in winter because it keeps you nice and warm (laughs) with all these hot temperatures. Not so good in the summer. And this last water is just extracting the last remaining sugars that are left. There's not quite enough for me to use them in fermentation, but there is enough for me to just hold on to. And what then happens is we recycle it to become the first water of the next batch. So that will then become the new 63 and a half degrees of water. Nice. It saves on energy as well. So it's very green because I'm not using extra energy to heat something up. It's already preheated for me. And we're just recycling it. Yeah. Great. Yeah. The company bio that you had furnished, fully half of it speaks to sustainability. Yep. And we just won an award for that as well. Yeah. We're very green fingered. (laughs) So what do you guys do with the barley when you're done? Do you feed it to cows or something? Yeah. So what we do with the spent barley, it gets renamed again. It's this time it's called DRAF, D-R-A-F-F. And what we do is we put it in a large silo outside and I phone the local farmer. He's very friendly (laughs) and he comes down every other day with his big tractor and trailer and he just fills it into the back of his trailer, takes it away and feeds the cows. And apparently they go mental for it, especially in the winter when it's still hot. Oh, yeah. It's like oatmeal. Hot dinner. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. That's wonderful. Yeah. Are his cows like American cows? Are they those beautiful long haired with the big... What do you call those cows? They're so beautiful. Like a Highland cow? Yeah, the Highland cows. No, his unfortunately aren't so majestic. They're still lovely, but they're um, Scotch beef. He raises them. For- oh, okay. Well, he has both. It's actually a dairy farm and a meat farm. Ah, okay. Oh, nice. So they're just standard issue cows. Yeah, but they're still pretty. I used to work with them, remember, so I'm very passionate about them. They're very pretty guys. Right, right, right. Yes, of course. So say you're doing a batch. How many days or hours or whatever do you have from start to finish before you pass it to the next person? Yes. So the mashing over those three different temperatures of water to the draft extraction, that's an eight-hour cycle. Okay. So each shift is responsible for one batch. And the fermentation process is 56 hours minimum. Wow. So depending on the schedule, it can go a little bit longer, but it has to be a minimum of 56 hours before it can go over to distillation. And that just gives the yeast time to obviously, someone once told me it's maybe quite rude, (laughs) but you've got the yeast and the way to describe it is the yeast eats all all the sugar within the wort and it farts out CO2 gases (laughs) and then pips out lovely alcohol. (laughs) Nice. Nice. But it's quite... But it's true. These are the facts in life. Yes, yes. The facts of life, yeah. Yeah, we all do it. Yeah, that's how the yeast produces my lovely beer. (laughs) 
I remember reading Everybody Poops to my toddler daughter. It's a thing. Yes. Yeah. We used to have school groups and things around for tours and they always found that quite funny and interesting. That's cute. So you're in charge of babysitting it while it's fermenting as well. Yes. Awesome. Again, everything's just monitored by I in the fermentation room, um, including the yeast as well. It's not liquid yeast that comes in through pipes. We actually get our yeast delivered in big 20 kilogram sacks which I have to carry up a flight of stairs. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so three of these bags um, per fermentation. Um, So again, it's all done by hand. We then watch them by hand as well. Sometimes the CO2 and the bubbles can rise right up and I've actually seen the bubbles come through the lids a few times. Oh no. So you need to catch it early and we have these huge big switcher blades just under the lids of these washbacks. So if that foam does get too aggressive, we can turn on these big blades and then that can just control the foam as well, mm-hmm. which is quite therapeutic to watch actually. Yeah. I could imagine. I could imagine. Yeah. Yeah. We also take all our measurements by hand as well. Uh So when the fermentation starts, I take a measurement called a gravity, which is basically just telling me how good sugar conversion I got from my mash. Um, It will give us an idea of how it should ferment over the 56 hours. And to do that, I just have two steel containers, which I think are from 1833, (laughs) attached to a piece of uh, chain. And we just throw them in by hand. When it splashes on your face, it's delicious. I always have a little taste. Nice. And we just take measurements that way as well. And we also do a final gravity using the same equipment at the end of the fermentation to see how good a result we got as well. Wow. So that's pretty much my job. And from there, once I'm finished with it, I've created this very light fruity beer, sort of similar to a German fruit beer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. looks like cloudy apple juice in color it's quite light it's quite tasty to drink Uh, we call it joe that's its nickname a cup of joe (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah you maybe wouldn't want to go into a bar and order a pint of joe (laughs) (laughs) so has any of the stuff that you have made made it into anything that anyone outside of your company has tasted yet? (laughs) Funny you should say that because I actually just had quite a proud moment last week because the batch that I would have first started with just legally became whiskey as of last week at three years and one day old. So that was quite an achievement. Yeah, it's quite strange. Did you get to taste it? Unfortunately not. Maybe next week I'll ask for a sample. I mean, you should. I mean, that's your pride and joy right there. Yeah, it's quite funny to work in an industry. Last demands do. I can see the headline now. I think it's really strange to work in an industry where I've been doing this job for just over three years now, yet something that I produced that long ago has now just turned into what I was making. Yeah. Right. To get my head around that is crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But unfortunately, I'll need to wait a bit longer because to become Glenn Goyne, it's a minimum of 10 years. So yeah. You answer the next question. I've got a few more years left before I get fired in case it's not any good. (laughs) Before us today, we have the 12 and the 21. Yes. Yes. You'll be approaching retirement by the time the... uh, Oh, she's young. She won't be... That's... (laughs) Come on. It's in the air there. I'll be working well into my 70s and 80s like Jim and Peter as well. Okay. Very good. I was going to say, Philip, you'll be approaching retirement by the time Earth gets 21. (laughs) Come on. All right. Next. All right. Very good. Moving on. Yeah. Shall we talk 
Juice, shall we talk whiskeys? Yes, yes. So I've got the 12 right here. I'm looking at both of these. I don't know if you saw, but I tagged us all in a photo of my pores this morning. And I noticed that the 21 is definitely a darker amber. Yep. And the 12 is more golden. Yep. It is just, they look incredible. They do. It's good for me. I've just worked a full shift and it's my evening time. So it's the perfect time for me to have a dram. Oh, very good. Yeah, we keep doing this where we have to drink in the morning. We have to change the time zones or something. (laughs) (laughs) You should have done it when I was on night shift and then we could have been at the same time. (laughs) Oh, well. I think the only answer is no more residents of the British Isles. And we don't want to do that. Yeah. No, can't do that. So I'm looking at this and this has some seriously nice legs, the the 12 year. Yes. Like dripping nice and it's. This was one of the reasons I chose to kind of talk about the 12 year old with you is this was one of the very first Glengoyne whiskey that I ever tried. Nice. So when I first started at the company, and I was just in my training. The best part of training is you get to sample all the whiskeys. Oh, okay. I'm coming over. That's it. I'm going to be a tour guide. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Fantastic job. Brilliant. <laughs> and the, the one that they started us off with was this 12-year-old falling in love with the picturesque scenery of Glengoyne, the smells of the still house, then tasting it. That was me. I was completely hooked and I knew this is where I just had to spend my life was in this distillery. Yeah. Were you a big whiskey drinker before you started working there or had you even had any whiskey before that? Not at all. Sorry to say, no one in my family drinks at all. I was the one rebel child that was the booze head when I turned 18. So so lucky 18. We have to be 21 here. Yeah. <laughs> so it was something that I'd never even grown up with. Um, nobody in my family drinks any alcohol. So it really was a complete brand new experience. Are they Calvinists or something along those lines? I don't know. Maybe I was adopted. I'm not sure where I get it from. <laughs> <laughs> my sister's the same. So are they supportive in your career choice? Yeah, they love it. All three of my sisters, we all drink. So my mom and dad say, that we don't know where you get it from. You're all working in alcohol and <laughs> drinking, but they don't mind. They're happy. They're not teetotalers on principle. They just, they have a taste for it. They've just not got a taste for it yet. Got it. Well, they've got about, what, seven more years. Yeah. And then they need to drink a bottle of your, yeah. My mom says she's not a big drinker, but give her some of this 21-year-old and she won't say no. So she's actually just kidding herself on. <laughs> nice. <laughs> And I could see why she wouldn't say no. The 21, oh, it's so... That's maternal care. That's yeah, what that is. Yeah, the 21 is just beautiful. So I'm still on my 12-year-old at the moment, if you're enjoying that one. Well, I was too, but I, I started to stop. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So because our 12-year-old has some refill casks and it's also got some bourbon in it, it's very light. Mm-hmm. I think it's a lovely introduction to a Glengoyne whiskey because mm-hmm. it really shows that we're very light and fruity. You know, that's our unique style. Okay. So it's a blend of Glengoyne refill. Yeah. And those originally were ex-bourbon? They can be either. They can either be a refill bourbon or a refill sherry. Mm-hmm. It can be either. So there's actually 60% of the bottle is from those refill casks. Okay. 20 is from a first fill bourbon cask, which is why you get the nice sort of coconut elements coming through from the white oak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the last 20% is from an Oloroso first fill sherry cask. Okay. So that's what what gives you that kind of little bit of space that you get at the end on your tongue. Yeah. Oh, that's one of the things I adore about the Glengoyne 12 is that spice. Yes. Yeah. Both Carrie and I are big fans of American rye whiskey and, you know, that spice that, that, mm. anyway, yeah. So it's a mix of American oak and Spanish oak in that case. Yep. A perfect um, starter dram, I guess, is why I loved it so much when I first tasted it on my first day at Glengoyne. Just loved it. 
Loved it. Mm-hmm. So the 21, does it start off the same or is it a different mash bill or is it all the same? So the 21-year-old is completely different. Nice. This was one that I fell in love with whilst working um, at the distillery. It was always one that you would try and sneak a little taste of whenever you got the chance. Right. The 21-year-old is 100% from first fill Oloroso sherry casks. Ugh. So to me, I just think it's like, Christmas in a glass. <laughs> and if you look at the legs on it as well, they're just so thick. You can just see the kind of sugars and all that richness from the sherry coming out when you look at it from the color yep. and also mm-hmm. when you look at it in the glass. Mm-hmm. To me, it's just like a cuddle. If you're feeling down or <laughs> if, if it's a cold day outside, if you just pour yourself a little dram of 21-year-old, you just become happy. Yeah. It's like a cuddle in a glass. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. I love it. It mm-hmm. is. It's fantastic. Yeah. So I know that Philip said that we're both Rye fans, but he neglected to mention that I'm a big Speyside sherry. Uh, I didn't neglect it. I left it for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> so when I first started drinking scotch, many more people were using sherry. Instead, now they're using more bourbon. And I've noticed the change in several brands. So what I'm excited about is that you guys and Tamdu still use the sherry and it's still more sherry forward than bourbon forward. Yeah. Yeah. And Tamdu is exclusively ex-sherry. Yeah. Everything they release. Yes. Yep. Yep. It's incredible when um, we get a delivery of fresh sherry casks that come in and you just take the bungs out and I could stand over these casks with my nose in them, smelling them all day. I bet. Uh There is nothing quite like the smell that comes from these casks. Even in our warehouses, when I go in the warehouse, I hold my breath until I'm right in the middle of the warehouse. And then I just take a really deep breath in and the smells that you get from all these predominantly sherry casks maturing is just enough to knock you off your feet. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, it's so, such a strong, sweet smell that you can taste it on your tongue. It's incredible. For the benefit of our listeners, I think we should mention here that both Glen Goyne and Tamdu are members of the Ian McLeod Distillers family. Yes. So, yeah. Oh, speaking of Ian Cloud, I heard in the news the other day something about Rose... Rose Bank? Rose Bank? Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about that, Lauren? And can you share that with us? Yeah, I know a little bit. So, obviously, Rose Bank was a, an old Diageo site that was, well, mothballed effectively. It's quite famous for having it still stolen. Oh. I don't know if you'd heard that. How sad. Yeah, so when it was shut down... Did they find them? Nope, some very brave people. They just put on high-vis jackets as if they were workmen. (laughs) And they literally went inside the building and cut apart the stills, which is horrific. But I suppose it's copper. They say, enter like you own the place and you can get away with anything. Yep, they did it in broad daylight with (laughs) high-vis jackets on as if they were workmen. And they completely took every inch of the stills away. So that was really sad, especially for the history of it. So Ian McLeod have have purchased Rosebank and unfortunately with the whole situation of the pandemic right now, the opening has been pushed back a year or so, but they have again stuck to their family traditions of they like everything to stay traditional. So we have got new stills being built, which will be the same as the old ones. I have been lucky enough to see a few little videos of what the distillery will look like and I am very excited for the future to see what it brings. That's wonderful. Yeah. Very cool. And how far away is that distillery from Glen Goyne? It's about an hour. 
an hour away. Okay. It's actually closer to myself. I stay in Stirling. So this new distillery will actually be closer to where I stay than where Glengoyne will be. So maybe I could uh, transfer. You never know. <laughs> sure. Get around. Yeah, it would be incredible to be part of something that's coming back, you know, to revamp something, to say I was part of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that start of it would just be incredible. I would love that. Absolutely love it. Well, sure. It's a storied brand. So yes, Scotland is home to so very many storied brands. Yes. And many of them over the last 10, 20 years have been resurrected, revivified, and still more are coming back online. Distilleries that had been mothballed and shuttered. Yep. So it's a great time to be alive for a whiskey drinker. Yes. And a whiskey maker, I think. Yeah. And what I also love as well is there's a lot more younger people that are really getting into it and into the industry, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. Maybe it's not the correct way, but when I was growing up, whiskey was seen as the sort of old man's drink in the pub. Yep. <laughs> it wasn't seen for women or younger people, but that's completely turned on its head now, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. Um, the amount of younger people that we were getting to come on tour um, to the distillery, um, the likes of myself, and there's quite a lot of other young people that work at Glengoyne now as well. And we're all so passionate. And I think that's incredible. I think it's about time that whiskey changed and was part of the younger generation because it's delicious. Why would not? Why would you not want to drink it? Absolutely. You're certainly the poster child for a new paradigm. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. So speaking of delicious, which expression of the Glen Goyne is your favorite? The 21-year-old. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, I can see that. Totally see that. It's delicious. Can you talk to us briefly about the other expressions, standard expressions? Yeah, so we have our our Glengoyne 10-year-old, which is our youngest. I don't want to say it's similar, but it's got refill casks in it, 70% refill. So again, it's just a very lovely light, light whiskey. It's a very good introductory whiskey. I think that's what's good about Glengoyne as well, because if people maybe aren't, if it's the start of their whiskey journey, because we're so light on the palate, it's a good place to begin mm-hmm. rather than starting off with maybe some, I mean, I love a peated whiskey, but they can be too much for some people to begin with. Mm-hmm. So Glengoyne's a great place to start. Yes. So we have our 10-year-old, we have our 18-year-old, which is delicious as well. It's won countless awards. It's 50-50 um, between first fill Oloroso sherry mm-hmm. and a white uh, oak sherry and then refill casks. Mm-hmm. So again, on the nose, it's quite fruity and um, more kind of oranges and raisins. Mm. And then when you taste it, it's got hints of the 21-year-old where it's got that kind of like cinnamon spice that comes through mm-hmm. because of the Oloroso sherry. Mm-hmm. We also do a cast strength, which comes out in different batches. Mm-hmm. So each one can be just slightly different, but still delicious. They all have first fill all are also sherry in them so to keep the family together they all have that nice rich mouth feeling that comes from the oloroso oak nice the cask strength releases are those at every age point or is that just the 18 so that's just 18 so the cask strength is an age statement so there could be anything in there but you know ah okay there'll be nothing younger than 10 but mm-hmm. in the refill side it could have much older casks and it. it could have an 18 in it or a 20 in it or a 15 in it mm-hmm. but it's in a we do an age statement that one Mm-hmm. Understood. Is there anything beyond 21? Yeah, we have quite a few. Mm-hmm. We have a 25-year-old, which is delicious. I actually got a bottle for my 25th birthday a while ago now. <laughs> <laughs> 
it lasted two days. I thought I'd be very generous mm. with my friends and say, <laughs> oh, I've got this lovely 25-year-old to all have a dram for my birthday. They were either my best friends or the worst friends because we pretty much finished the bottle. Right. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> So we have a 25-year-old, um, we've had a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old. Oh, wow. One of my favourite moments, actually, it wasn't a bottled whiskey, but I was in the warehouse one day and I was walking through our old, we have very traditional Dunnage style warehousing mm -hmm. where the casts are three high on wooden sticks, you know, earth floors, very damp, the smell. And I was roaming around in there having a look and I came across a whiskey cask the same age as myself. Awesome. It was a 89 cask and I just stared at it and I thought, wow, that is incredible to be looking at a cask that has been sat in this warehouse for my entire life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you go grab a thief and take a little sip? <laughs> I really wish I was allowed, but I didn't want to lose my job. Yeah. But I did sign the cask with my name and I claimed it as my own. Oh, that's cute. It has since been bottled. So I reckon that my special cask was in our Glengoyne 30 year old. <laughs> mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. Nice. But that was incredible to, it just hit home the tradition of the distillery. Yeah. You know, just how long it's been there. And I just thought that was incredible to see something as old as me. <laughs> mm -hmm. I have a collection of photographs of bottles of whiskey, casks of wine, etc. dated the year of my birth. That's incredible. Yeah. I don't come across them often, but you know, it's just by chance, but it's a lovely feeling. It's something magical about it, I think. Mm -hmm. I actually had a, uh, I was at a virtual tasting the other night and I had a Dalmore that was one year older than me. That's incredible. And it was actually pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty good. I thought it would be woody. I mean, it was slightly woody, but it wasn't, I thought it was going to be, you know. Yeah. Have you tasted the 40? Oh, myself. Yes, you. Yes. I have actually. Yes. And it was delicious. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Still tastes like the juice. It's not overwhelmed by wood. Nope. Not overwhelmed. I th okay. think that's such a great skill as well from our master blender to mm -hmm. know when a cask is going to be ready. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So sampling it along its maturation journey to just pick it at that perfect point to make sure it just doesn't go too far into yeah. the stage where it's going to become ruined by being too woody. It's just mm, right. selecting it at that perfect moment. Yeah. A tannic travesty. Yes. 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 <laughs> that would be disastrous. Our travesty of tannic proportions. There we go. That's a good one. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, cocktails. Cocktails. Do you partake? I love a cocktail. Ah, so talk to us about your favorite category, your go-tos, with and without Glen Goyne. And it doesn't have to be whiskey. Well, one of my uh, favorite cocktails is actually just a traditional whiskey sour. Nice. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can go wrong. No, you're getting eggy with it. All good. <laughs> we created a cocktail at a Glengoyne party that we had one day, and it was delicious. And it was just some Glengoyne, some 10-year-olds with some drambuie and some lime over ice. Oh, my goodness. That was oh. delicious. Mm, yes. Well, again, Lauren, thank you so much for being here with us today. And I will let you know when we're going to put this on air so you can tell all your friends. And we hope to see you when we get to Scotland. Oh, yes, that would be fantastic. Come for a visit and we'll have some kilt lifter or kilt splitter cocktails. Or kilt splitters if you can get your hands on some cask drink. Yes. <laughs> yes, that would be fantastic. <laughs> all right. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me on. Yes, thank you. Cheers. World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us. The Center for Culinary Culture, home to the Cocktail Collection, has a YouTube channel, Eats, Drinks TV. Streaming now are Cocktails, The Grand Tour. 
Culinary Quickies, Music and Booze with Mo, B is for Vino, and this podcast, Spirits of Whiskey. New shows coming soon include Complete Greek, Mighty Fine Wine, and Spirits of Rum, a podcast featuring personalities from the wide world of cane spirits. Find us on YouTube at Eat Drinks TV and subscribe now. The Center for Culinary Culture, telling the story of food and drink, one taste at a time. For more information, visit culinaryculture.center. Hey, Louise, welcome back. How are you this week? I'm doing quite well. How you been, Carrie? I'm good. So today's guest is Lauren Oliver, who's the mash lass over at Glengoyne. Great story. I love talking to her and I love their whiskeys because they all, not all, but a lot of them have the extra sherry finish, which the 21 does have. So I was very pleasantly surprised about the 21. I didn't feel it was overly oaky. So I thought, let's see what Louise can do with it. Well, I agree with you on all of that. I didn't think it was overly oaked as well. I immediately started thinking about cheese. I would like to have this as something to drink after a meal or even possibly for a midday treat. You know, I... I I can see the midday. I may have seen that recently, like since I brought the samples to you. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think... Let's see. When did I? I'm trying to think what time of day it was that I drank this particular one. I mean, listen, I can't be trusted. It could have been 8 a.m. It could have been 4 p.m. It could have been midnight. I don't know. Especially during COVID times. Every time of the day is all, it's the same. It's all It's all the same. Listen, hey. There's no driving. There's no going anywhere. I always say, you do you, honey, and I'll do me. And then, it, and that's that. Right. So, all right. So with the Glen Goyne 21, I really wanted to pick up on the dried fruit, the honey, the apple notes. And it really had me craving a big wedge of creamy, maybe even slightly stinky blue cheese. Oh, nice. I have never met a blue cheese I don't like. <laughs> and I started thinking about this. If I had some really, really nice blue cheese, I would wrap it in a layer of puff pastry, maybe up and around it from the bottom up, sort of like a crostata. So that bit of the cheese is, oh, wow. is sticking up out of the center of it. And then if you just stick that in the oven and get it all nice and, and crisp and oh my gosh, and the puff pastry gets all buttery and all toasted and golden. And then serve that with just some fresh, really ripe apples, drizzle everything with some honey, maybe some fresh thyme, a little bit of sea salt. This could be you know, like I said, this could be dessert. This could also be a midday treat. You know, you're taking a long walk through the highlands. I could see coming in and having this when you're done. I totally can. And I'm now totally hungry because that sounds so good. Buttery puff pastry. You got me that. You got me at the puff pastry. Yeah. I mean, that whole thing that could even be, listen, if you added a nice, like just bitter green salad to it, it could also be lunch. I mean, it, it could be, Yeah. It, you could make it in a very small bite-sized form and it could be hors d'oeuvres for a party, you know? I mean, if I had this here right now, it would be lunch. (laughs) Yeah, this could this could kind of uh, manifest in a number of different ways. But all I know is that apples, honey, blue cheese, whiskey, all together in the same, you know, party in my mouth, this all works for fantastic, fantastic. 
I can't wait. Well, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to this buttery puffed pastry. And uh, I'm also looking forward to talking to you next week to see what other amazing things you have to offer. Great. Well, I'm starting to think about them. I hopefully will come up with some new and exciting pairings to wow you next week, Carrie. And I'm sure you will. All right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. For show notes on today's podcast, please visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as tasting notes and recommendations from today's World of Wheezy. As always, you'll see upcoming topics, a guest roster, and links to past shows. Sign up to become a VIP member of Spirits of Whiskey. With your membership, you'll have access to listen to our series, The Malting Floor, be able to watch extra video content related to past episodes, and you'll enjoy access to our webcast series and other spinoffs not available to anyone else. Enroll now by making a monthly donation at anchor.fm slash spirits of whiskey. Click on the support button and select the contribution level that's right for you. Once you've submitted your payment information, visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com to create your personal VIP profile. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Slanchava! Spirits of Whiskey is produced by First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are heard.